Acts chapter 11. So when I was thinking about what I wanted to say this morning, you know, I had a lot of different thoughts. So if you consider sort of missions generally, you could talk for hours and hours and days and days and take it in all kinds of different directions. And you know, it's not because I'm anything special or in some great position, because I'm not, but I have the privilege of knowing a lot of what's going on in the world with regards to churches, to pastors, to missionaries, to people being saved and baptized and all kinds of wonderful things. So I, I could sit here, and I thought about this, I could sit here and I could tell you stories about, you know, in this country or that country, what's going on. And I think that you would be encouraged by it, you know, that there's brothers and sisters that we all have that you don't know them and I don't even know them, but to hear of their faith, to hear a testimony of God's grace is something amazing. But then I thought, you know, that I, I really want for us to see, you know, for myself and also for you, I really want for us to see that God's kingdom is advancing. That despite what we see in this country, in this state, in this city, despite what you might hear on the news, despite, you know, even discouragements in your own heart, that God has promised to redeem a people for himself, to pull people out of their lives, uh, the way that they're born in this world, to draw them in, to get glory for himself, to exalt his son. That God really is doing more, far more than we could ask or think in this world. And so what I hope for us is that we take our minds off of us off of the individual for a second. I hope that we can take our minds and set it first on an example of the early church in Acts 11. And then I hope we can take that that same thought and apply it to ourselves and you can see what's going on, how, how God is working, how he's moving. So stories about what's going on, they're, they're good. You know, all of us have a testimony of God's grace in our life, of God's grace in this church. But what really motivates, what really drives, what, what, really causes, what God really uses to push your heart towards loving him more, towards wanting to see him exalted and proclaimed in every corner of this earth is his word. So that's where we'll start. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26. It says, So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. And verse 23, Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers of, of and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year they met with the church and taught the considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Let me pray briefly one more time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this truth. 
Lord, just reading this text, Lord, how it warms, warms the heart, how you hear of the testimony of saints will one day see face to face. And Lord, we ask that you would please be here this morning to meet with us through your word, or that you would take this word and you would apply it to each one of our hearts. Lord, that you would be exalted and glorified and proclaimed, that you would be Lord, made chief among all of us. So, Father, we ask for your help now in Christ's name. Amen. So three points from that text that I'd like to draw out. So you have point one, the explosion of Antioch. Point two, the encouragement of Antioch. Point three, the endurance of Antioch. So the explosion, the encouragement, and the endurance. So starting back, the first three verses, the explosion of Antioch. We just read what happened. But to go back a little bit and remember what happened, you know, um, there had been about 10 years since Christ's ascension. So we have that in Acts chapter 1 where Christ was on the earth after he was crucified and resurrected. He was walking around. You know, he gave some final instructions to the disciples and he ascended into heaven. And so they went to the upper room and they, they waited like he told them to. You know, he had told them, go reach all the world, but then wait. You know, don't go out without the Holy Spirit. So you all know probably the story of Pentecost, how the Spirit came down, miraculous things happened. The disciples, the apostles, those who were gathered in that upper room went out from there preaching and teaching and proclaiming this risen Christ. Um, the church grows. So you see, if we were to read through the first 10 chapters of Acts, you would see a number of sermons. You see Peter's sermon where he calls, especially the saints in Jerusalem, he says, here's uh, what's happened? Here's this Christ. You know, the time has come. You're familiar with this Old Testament story of, of Israel and of this Messiah. Well, here's the Messiah. So he calls them to repentance and faith. And there's several instances where it says a great number turned to the Lord. A great number were cut to the heart and they were baptized and they were saved. We see the church growing and flourishing and thriving. It thrives so much to the point that you see instances where the apostles are put in jail, where people are beaten and they're warned, don't speak in the name of Christ. You remember it in these opening chapters of Acts where there was the bold declaration where somebody said, we don't want to disobey you as our earthly leaders, but we have to obey God before we obey men. You also have this, this warning from Gamaliel um, where he's a Jewish leader, and he's talking to the Jews who are persecuting the Christians, and he says, if you think about this for a second, if this thing continues, then maybe it is of God. But he says, there have been other messiahs who have come, other false prophets who have come, so if these men right here are false, there's no reason for us to oppose them because they're going to fizzle out. But he says, if they are correct, if this is the true messiah, we don't want to be found opposing God. And we know 2,000 years later that this mission has continued, that those men were found opposing God. So up until now, the main church in this story of Acts that Luke records is in Jerusalem. It's the church in Jerusalem where there were some 25,000 strong. So they went from 120 gathered in an upper room to 25,000 in a handful of years that God really was drawing people in. He was calling people out of darkness into light. So that's where we find ourselves then in verse 19, that that's what's happened. That's where we are. 
But I've skipped over one important thing, and that was the first Christian martyr, Stephen. So if you imagine for a second, you know, there's 25,000 people. That's bigger than the town that I grew up in, and they're all you know, proclaiming this Lord. They're trying to work out how to live together. You know, they're sharing their needs, et cetera, et cetera. They're, they're trying to live as a community. And then something happens where it puts their faith to the test. That Stephen's words are twisted. They're used against him. That Stephen was stoned, he was killed, and he said, Lord, forgive them, they, they don't know what they're doing. He, he prayed for the people who were persecuting him. So verse 19 starts out, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen. So Stephen's death caused the church no longer a stronghold of 25,000, but they were sent out from there. They ran with fear, they, they ran with anxiety, with worry. Is this going to happen to me next? Am I going to be the next one who's martyred? You know, it's easy for us to, to sit back and talk about things in theory, to take Christian doctrines, to spend time in our studies and say, you know, I, I really believe this truth. I really believe this Christ, that what he says is true. But then when you have something like a martyrdom of one of your own, it makes you step back and say, do I really believe this? So I can imagine that that was the mindset of some as they went out was, I don't know if I really believe that this Christ was the Messiah. I know that I professed him, but now I'm scared. So imagine being forcibly cast out from this place. Imagine running in fear. Maybe they were asking themselves, how could our God let this happen? You know, some of the statements that Christ made on earth, that it sounds like he was going to usher in this, this new uh, kingdom and, and earth and everything right here and right now. It sounds like that he was coming to rule and to reign now. But now he's ascended, he's given us his spirit, but people are dying. What's going on? You know, there's this statement that I've heard that people love to, to, to boast about when they talk about missions. And it's a statement that people take too lightly when they say it. They say, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So in this case, the blood of Stephen, him being slaughtered, is the seed of the church. It's what causes the church to grow. So you have to evaluate it. You say, is that true? And in this text, I think it is true, because we can go on and we can read how the grace of the Lord was so evident and the hand of the Lord was upon these people, that people were converted, and the only reason why they left Jerusalem scattered is because Stephen was martyred. So in that way, you know, in God's kind providence, that they were cast out from that place running in fear, but they went out proclaiming, and that people heard and they repented and believed, and the church multiplied. So it was more than 25,000. And that happens today some, that when nations rise against nation and people rise up against the church, that God's people haven't been given a spirit of fear but of power, and so they go out proclaiming they're not scared of death, even though the world thinks that they are, that sometimes people are converted, they are saved as a result of persecution. But I've heard men, foolish men, who I, who I love, who I know have said this, they say, I want to pray for persecution because I want us to start living like real Christians. And that is the most foolish thing that any of us could ever pray because you don't know what you're asking for. That if you look at churches in North Korea or in other places that they're actually being persecuted, then you don't want to ask for that because the church is hindered and it's limited. Let me read for you very quickly uh, the opposite of, of praying for persecution. 
It's in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we, we pray this for places that I work with, places that I know of that are, are under distress, that the government is against them, that people are being arrested. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So rather than praying for persecution, you need to pray this. You need to pray for God to preserve you, to protect you. Not so you can, you know, circle the wagons and close everything in and hide from what may be coming in this country, but to pray for God's protection so that while it is day, you can continue to work. So that while it's day and while the government is not against you or leaders are not attacking you or people are not being martyred, that you can continue working for God. You can continue laboring for God. You can continue striving after him every single day. And then prepare yourself that one day persecution may come and that you will have to stand for Christ. So, is the blood of martyrs the seed of the church? In God's kind providence, he uses all things for the good of his people. But don't ever ask for persecution. Ask for God's favor. So verse 19, we see something of a, a division in the church. You know, not explicit, but at the end of verse 19, he goes on, and it says that these people who were going out from Jerusalem who were scattered, the very last phrase, they were speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. So if you remember, if you're familiar with Acts, there's the vision of Cornelius where you know, there is the understanding that this Christian community was something of a Jewish community, that you know, Christ had come and he was the way of salvation, but he was really just a Jewish Messiah, that Christ was crucified as the king of the Jews. And so at some point, God had to intervene and say, you've got it all wrong, that he's the God, he's the Messiah, he's the savior of the Jews and also of the Greeks. So there's this division then, and these men speaking to Jews alone, they haven't yet heard of this wonderful news that the salvation has come to all. Um, you know, I'm, I've been doing this series on the major covenants in the Bibles for our, our inter, or for our website, for our YouTube channel. And one of the most amazing things is that you can see, if you trace the, the, the line of God's redeeming work, trace the line of God working from Genesis 1 all the way until Revelation, it's easier to look back in history and realize this, but it's so clear that God never intended for just a single nation to be saved. He never intended for just a single people to have access to him through uh, a covenantal work or through a special relationship, but that even before the foundations of the earth, God, the Father, he, sent, he set himself to send the Son with the help of the Spirit to save not just Jews, because that would be too small, but he's God. He sent this Savior to save the entire world, to have the opportunity for every tribe, every tongue, every person, every nation to hear this wonderful news, to have a chance for every heart to respond in faith and obedience. So I'm glad that this verse doesn't stop at verse 19, but it keeps going because in verse 20, it says there were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch, so this new city outside of Jerusalem, it was a major capital of, of Syria. They came to Antioch and they began speaking to Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And so praise God for these men because all of us here today, if it weren't for these men, maybe we wouldn't have this gospel. 
You know, maybe we would have had to convert to Judaism in order to have the gospel preached to us, but no. These men knew of the news that this was a message for all. So as they went out in fear and in persecution and in running from trial, they proclaimed the word, they proclaimed the gospel. And what happened? Verse 21, it says, The hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So not only did these people go out, go to Antioch and establish new lives with their families, not only were they preaching the gospel, but the Lord saw fit to bless the preaching of that gospel. He saw fit to cause a large number to turn to them. You know, maybe you've understood something of this when you're out evangelizing, if you're talking to your family or to your friends, if you're trying to witness to, you know, your children, say, you need to understand this, that you need the gospel as much as I do. Maybe you've realized something of the foolishness of it, that, you know, God has a a way of using the weakest of men, of using the weakest of women, the weakest of means to cause them to want to stand up and proclaim something of a message about him, to proclaim the gospel. Into the outside world watching in, you know, they laugh at us. They think, you think with a single word you're going to do anything significant? You think that with a single word you're going to be able just to proclaim and present a set of truths and that people will be changed? And I would tell you that I think about this every time that I go up to talk to somebody or speak. You know, I'm not the Apostle Paul. I don't have all kinds of learning and education. I have no reason in the flesh to boast. I'm not Barnabas. As we saw him, he's a son of encouragement. He went out and he was teaching and he was celebrating with the people and encouraging them. I'm not Apollos. I don't have some eloquent way of, with, with words. I don't have some you know, speech prepared. I'm not reading from a paper here, just, you know, of word by word what, sh- what I should say. And there are great preachers here on this earth now that God has given to us who can stand up and be something like those men I just mentioned. But even them, they're weak men who were desperate for God to work. And so when we read in verse 21 about the hand of the Lord being with them, it's something to marvel at and to ask God to do. Say, Lord, when the gospel is preached, when it's the truth is proclaimed. Will you please move on our behalf? Because without the Spirit of, the God work, of God working, without the Spirit moving, without the wind blowing, we're hopeless. Our words fall flat. This truth falls flat. This whole enterprise called the Great Commission ends. Maybe you've learned this verse, Romans 1.16, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And it's, it's that singular message of the gospel of what Christ has done that God uses to change everything. That it's our means as a missionary society, as your church here, it's your means. It's what you go out with. It's your weapon. In this world today, there's so often that people, even good intended people, go out and maybe they're part of a church, maybe they're Christian in some way, And they say, you know, we have this gospel, but it's not enough. We want to add something to it. We want to have some social theory. We want to have some, you know, good works along with it. We want to have something else. We want to draw people in for a different means and then trap them. And then say, okay, now here's this gospel. And you know, I understand it. I almost understand it because it is. If you stand up and you trust God to work and you don't see God working, Your temptation is to turn yourself to another means, to turn to the arm of the flesh. 
But on the other hand, it's antithetical to the gospel to add anything else to it. And it's an offense to God because God did not intend it that way. There's this brother that I know who's he's a pastor in Spain. And I call them, you know, he, he's been a pastor in a different part of Spain, and that church sent him to a big city to, to plant a church. And he's a really faithful man. He's a really smart man. And he was um, telling me about the church and how it was growing and what was going on. And I knew what his answer was going to be before he answered. So I asked him, I said, I said, brother, I said, tell me, how are you growing this church? You know, what are you doing to bring people in? And he said, I don't have a strategy. He said, I go out in the streets and I preach the gospel. I sit behind my desk and I preach the gospel. I talk to people, you know, paying bills and setting up this new rental house and establishing our life in this new city. And I preach the gospel to them when they ask me why I'm here. And he said, and God uses it to bring people in. There's another man that I know that I visited last month in Italy. And he is a very good man, you know. He'll he'll be real humble when you talk to him and tell you that he just, you know, he's, he's not real smart. He says, you know, I just don't know as much as you do, and all the good books are in English, and I, you know, try to read, but I don't always understand. And in the city that he lives in, in Italy, it's surrounded. There's, there's 40 churches that are of all different kinds of Protestant faith, and he said, so many of them manipulate people, and they control people, that they tell them, if you give me money, then God will bless you. If you give this church what you have, then God will, will, will lift up your family and cause you to not be sick. And he says, Brother Hunter, I really want to plant a church here. He said, I really want to do it, you know, but I'm just not ready. You know, I don't have everything that I need. I'm not sure how I would even start. I don't know what the first step is. And I said, Brother, I said, you know theology better than I do. You know your Bible in English as a second language better than I do. But I said, on top of that, I said, it's not about you. I said, you have something in your hand that 40 churches with all their members think they have and they don't. I said, you have the true gospel of the blessed God. You have the true gospel of the one true God. So I said, go out with that. I said, go on the offensive. Be jealous for God's name. Be zealous for his glory. I said, go out. What's the worst that can happen? I said, you expect people to be against you who are not Christians. So I said, go out asking God, asking his hand to be with you for evidence of his grace to be with you. Go out and reach this city for Christ, but reach it with the gospel. There's this other case in this other city in Eastern Europe, and there's this this terrible dictator who's over this country. And the believers there, you know, they're scared. You know, there's cases where we've had churches that we know of where members of the church have been arrested. Their deacons have been arrested. The pastors even have been arrested. And the charges are silly. You know, they, they, they have these, these trumped-up charges that are fake and false, and it's like, really, that's why you're going to arrest the guy? And really all it is is just a, a means of trying to control them. It's a means of, of trying to scare them from, you know, doing what they're doing as Christians. And so they'll call me sometimes, and I'll remind them of, of 1 Timothy 2, and I'll say, your mission is not to establish a better government, though that would be a good thing, less people would suffer. But I tell them all the time, you have the chance here. You have something in your hand that nobody else has. You have the one thing that will truly change people's lives, that will change their families, that will change your communities, that could even change your nation. 
And it's this one true message of the one true God who has done something for you that you need. So I said, go out with that as pastors. Let the politicians be politicians. But I said, go out with that as pastors, proclaiming this good news, asking God to work, and see how he can change your country. We see as a pattern in in the book of Acts that when the word goes out, when the truth is proclaimed, you know, in this case, when the men of Cyprus and Cyrene go out, that the church grows, that it's always first the word and then the work, that the spirit works through the word to change people's hearts. We also see this phrase in verse 21, it's the hand of the Lord. And, you know, sometimes it's easy to sit back here and maybe you're looking at your own city and you're saying, you know, God doesn't seem to be working. You know, what's going on here? Why, why isn't God moving? Why isn't he hearing our prayers? Why isn't he doing something? But a better question to ask when you stop looking inward and you look outward at the world is where is God working? That the Lord has a way of doing things that none of us can take credit for, that, you know, I'm part of a missionary society, and maybe you would think, not knowing anything about us, not even knowing me, that we're a bunch of experts on missions. You know, maybe you would imagine that we all have PhDs in missiology, and we're gone to the best schools in the country, and we're all prepared, and, you know, we can uh, reason from the text and from theology and from church history. And, you know, those are good goals to have, but none of us have a PhD. None of us went to very good schools. Some of us came from backgrounds that have nothing to do with missions. But the reality is, is that God works in spite of us sometimes. He works through us all the time. He uses us as a missionary society because we recognize we have no strength in ourself. We, we have no wisdom to give the world. We have nothing to offer except casting ourselves on God, asking for his favor, asking for his help, asking for his hand to be with the people who he loves more than we do, asking him to bless the families that we support. So I could go on with this point one, but... We need to go on to points two and three. So that was the explosion of Antioch. The first three verses, you see the gospel goes out through these these no-names, and people are converted. You have the encouragement of Antioch, verses 22 and 23. So this gives us a glimpse into the life of the early church. If you see, okay, people are going out. You know, it doesn't seem like they're pastors or anything. People are saved. The numbers are growing. How does this big church in Jerusalem respond? So the Jerusalem church sent a representative. They sent Barnabas, and he's elsewhere is called the son of encouragement. So they sent him not to, you know, not as a top-down, not as a hierarchy of churches, but to encourage the saints, to build them up. It's like they said, Barnabas, go and check out. You know, we hear these reports of what the Lord is doing. So go and check it out and see for yourself and, you know, help them in any way that you can. And then come back here and report. So the encouragement of Antioch is this, is that, Hearing the, the words of saints from all around the world is so encouraging. When I was in um, Europe last month, I, I had a long layover in uh, the city of Rome. And so we thought, well, while in Rome, you know, we'll go try to see something. So it was a, a friend of mine and I, and we got on a train, and we went down to the Colosseum. So if, if you've ever been there, then you know this, but you get off at the metro stop, and you walk out, you know, in this modern city, on this modern metro, and you look up, and there's the Colosseum. So it's, it's really cool. And, you know, I try to be conscious of being an American in a foreign place, and I don't want to draw attention to myself. I don't want people to say, what's this guy doing? But my friend, he's, he's not like that. 
And so I was over here, you know, like I, I was on my phone doing something, and I looked over, and my friend had memorized Romans chapter 1 before he came on the trip, and he was videoing himself with the Colosseum in the background, and he was uh, reciting Romans 1. And I said, what are you doing? <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he had a point to what he was doing, even though I wouldn't have done it that way. But he was reminded when he was there, he remembered Romans 1, where it talks about Paul wanted to go to the church in Rome for his encouragement and for theirs. So part of what I have the privilege of doing and working for Heart Cry is that, you know, sometimes we'll have conferences with um, international churches and we'll gather people together and we'll have a time of teaching and preaching. Sometimes we'll go like I did in January where you just go to spend time to see these brothers face to face, to spend time in their churches and their houses. You know, you can teach a few times and it's overall, you know, usually a time of encouragement. And that's what I love about it is, you know, I know that every time that I go and spend time with somebody, some pastor in the middle of nowhere in some small church, that he has stories of God's grace and the way that he's worked. He has stories of ways that people have come in from the outside and they didn't know what Christianity was or they had false ideas of it. He has stories of ways that people were saved, that they were converted. He has stories of how marriages were helped, how children were saved, how all kinds of things happened because the gospel was proclaimed. And I hope that I'm a similar encouragement to them as I take stories from my own church and take it to them, take stories from the mission that I work at and take it to them. But that's exactly what's going on here, I think, as Barnabas is going and saying, praise the Lord for what's going on here. But he doesn't just stop there. He continues on, it says, and he stays with them for a while. So he uh, teaches them, he instructs them, and, you know, one of the things I talked about in the last hour was the danger of superficial evangelism. So when somebody goes to somewhere with good intentions and they preach the gospel to somebody and then they go back to their homes and that person is left as a single believer with nobody around them, well, you can see where that could be the case here at Antioch, that if people are saved and they don't have the scriptures, they have the Old Testament if they have access to, you know, the, the Torah, but they don't have a Bible like we do. They have no means of instruction. They have no way to know the truth. They just know that they're Christian. So Barnabas probably went to, to help build up the faith of those people, to help see if there were any men who felt called to become leaders and teachers and pastors and all sorts of things in the church. There was probably the risk of you know, this work springing up and then people falling away. You know, Maybe they heard of Stephen being martyred and thought, these costs are high to be called a Christian. So that's the encouragement of Antioch, of Barnabas going and of sharing his common faith, of encouraging them to stay close to the Lord. And then lastly, the endurance of Antioch. So it says Barnabas stayed for a long time, but he wasn't just him. He went to go get Saul, or the Apostle Paul. So if you remember, Saul was sent to Tarsus, and I think it was eight years that he had been there. So Barnabas went to get him when they came back. So the explosion, or excuse me, the endurance of Antioch was this, that it wasn't just the gospel went out, and people were saved, and church was planted. That's what happened. It wasn't just that Barnabas went and tried to build up the church there, though that's also what happened. But what's really neat is that this isn't the end of the church in Antioch, that we, if we were to go on and read in future chapters, God uses Antioch as a center, as a headquarters, for more missionary journeys to go out from there, for more people to travel 
and visit other churches, just as he did Jerusalem. One of the things that's most significant, though, in these last three verses, 24 through 26, is it says here the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And I want to draw a contrast for you in two ways. So in verse 19, at the very end, it says, they were speaking to no one except to Jews alone. So maybe you can imagine in verse 19, there was this idea that, okay, we're Jewish Christians, so we stepped away from the Jewish faith, and you know, we still have the same laws, but you know, we're Jewish Christians, and that's our identity. That's who we are. So to come to Christ is not just to come to Christ, but there's all these other things that you have to do, all these other laws that you have to keep. Okay, so there's that idea. And then going on at the end of this passage, you have the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Do you see the contrast there? So this, this, this title of Christian was not one that they said, oh yeah, look at us, we're Christians. But the outside world looking in, there was this new and distinct group and they had to have a name for it. So they called them Christians or Christ imitators or disciples of Christ. Let me read for you, uh, turn very quickly with me to Philippians chapter 3. So you have that contrast between the church there uh, being called Christians for the first time, so however they were living was distinct and unique, that their identity was solely with Christ. Okay, You also have Saul in this story, and here's Saul's own testimony of his identity, of who he is. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 4. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I have far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. So then Paul concludes, though, with all those wonderful qualifications he has. Verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. So you see Paul's own testimony that he can say with the church in Antioch, my identity is solely and purely as a Christian. So you have to ask yourself, I have to ask myself, what am I known for? You know, if, if I did come from a, a Jewish lineage, am I known for being a Jewish Christian? If I were like the Apostle Paul, would I count all these, you know, degrees of, of, of pedigree that I have for why I should be, you know, thought of well? Do I count myself, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm this or I'm that or I have this behind me or I live in this state or I live in this certain country? You know, am I a Christian who's reformed? Am I a Christian who holds to this certain, certain doctrinal statement? Am I a Christian who works in mission, missions? You know, is that primarily what I identify myself with? But even more before that, if you ask those around you who know you best, from the outside looking in, what do you think of me as? If you were to describe me and describe my life, to describe my heart and what I'm about in one or two words, what would you say? And so the goal, obviously, is for it to be simply Christian, that you're a Christ follower, that you identify yourself with Christ and with Christ alone. 
If you consider the work that God did before the foundation of the world, how he worked through Adam and through Noah and through Abraham, through Moses, through all of Israel and all of their folly, how he saved them and protected them, how he brought forth Christ at the right time to die for the ungodly, then to be identified as anything else except as a Christ follower is foolish and folly. It's blatantly in the face of God's intention for us. Okay, so maybe you've heard all of this. You've heard about the church in Antioch. You've heard the gospel go forward. You've heard what Paul and Barnabas did. You're ready to identify as a Christian solely. And you say, why does this matter? So here's where I want to turn our attention from here as we are now. And I want you to consider missions, though, in this context of what you're doing here. If you noticed, I I didn't point it out on purpose, but if you notice in Acts chapter 11, in that first verse, it says, men of Cyprus and Cyrene went forward preaching to Greeks also. They were preaching the gospel. So before I read this text and before I studied it to come here, I had the mistaken impression that primarily, you know, the book of Acts, the gospel, people were saved primarily through the preaching of apostles, primarily through the preaching of, of, of pastors and of evangelists and of prophets, you know, big names that all of us would recognize and applaud. But if you hear that in, in verse 20 of Acts chapter 11, then you see that that's not true, that unnamed men are the reason why the work in Antioch started. Unnamed men, and I'm sure women, and if their children were saved too, unnamed families were scattered because of Stephen's persecution, and they went about proclaiming this good news of Jesus Christ. And God used that to build a church in Antioch, to build it up through Saul and Barnabas, to use that to send out more missionaries, send out more pastors and church plantings and evangelists to reach the world around it. So the point here is for us is that I'm not Paul, and I'm not Barnabas, and I'm not anything other than what I am, but that I have, just like you have here. You have something in your hand that you must share with your brothers and sisters. Here in this city, here in this state, in this country, to the watching world around us, and it's the good news of Jesus Christ that God does use pastors, and he does use evangelists. He does use people who he calls specifically to himself, but he also uses truck drivers and bankers and people who work at Kroger and Walmart and everything else. He uses average, everyday people, and he insists, or God demands, that you also be, as you go out, proclaiming the good news of what God has done for you. Not with a, a certain strategy, not with eloquence, never trusting on your own flesh, but asking God to show you who you should proclaim to and asking him to bring them into the kingdom. When you consider missions, maybe you have a definition in your mind of, okay, this is what missions is, or that's what missions is. But, you know, missions is actually pretty simple. Uh, the reason why we use the word missions is just to sort of identify between the church work that God's doing here in the U.S. and the church work that God is doing around the world. So it's only missions for us because we're in America looking outwards. So missions is church planting. Missions is evangelism. Missions is teaching and training. Missions is what you're doing here, but just internationally instead of only here in this city. So the call for you to be involved in missions is this. It's first and foremost to not be like the Pharisees, who Christ said, you'll go across the world to make a disciple, 
but you trip over the needy and the poor in your own city to get there, and you make yourself a twofold son of hell. So the warning for us is to not care about missions out there with nameless people and faceless people, but to care about missions here, to care about the people around you here. Because you have, again, that gospel message that you go out and proclaim in the streets, you go out and complain, com- and convey in the workplace, you go out and proclaim that word to everybody who you come into contact with. And God will use that to bring people into this church. God will use that to bring people to himself who may one day go out from this church and go plant the church somewhere in some foreign country. Missions can be very simply split up as our involvement as all of us as individual Christians. It can be very simply split into two separate categories. You can either hold the rope for those who are going down into the well or into the mine, or you can be the one who's going down into the well or mine. So if you picture, you know, I had a childhood friend who had a well, and we would take a rope and we'd drop the bucket down and bring up water or whatever. So you have that picture in your mind that you can hold the rope and you can uh, help support the person who's willing to go down, or you can be the one who's going down himself. But either way, it's the same participation that it's easy to have a romanticized view of what missions is. It's easy to have a romanticized view of, oh, well, you know, that's really for a second class of Christian, somebody who's better than me, somebody who's greater than me. But no, it's for all of us. It's, it's wrong for us to sit here with the resources that we have, with this message that we have, and to say, I'm going to keep it just to myself. But in some way, in whatever small way, ask God to put a burden on your heart for somebody else in some foreign place, and he'll do it. And then give yourself, give your life to supporting that person, to praying for that person, to if you can, go see that person. And that's your involvement in missions, is encouraging from faith to faith. So either way that you're involved, if you're holding the rope or if you're going down, missions is costly. That I have no doubt that you know, the, the verse that says that the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, I have no doubt that that devil would love to see all missionary activity in the world stop. That I could tell you story after story of times that we've been hindered, that we've cast ourselves as a mission on God in prayer, and that he's delivered us. So missions for this church here, in whatever way that you're involved in it, it's going to be costly. The devil would love for you to go about your day and your week and to keep to yourself. He would love for you to never give a thought to anybody else outside of this city. But God is greater than Satan, and he's commanded us, he's urged us, he's pleaded with us, hopefully through this word today, for you to give your mind, to give your thoughts, to give your life to somebody else. And if you're here this morning and you've heard everything that I've been talking about, you know, you, you, maybe you know that you're not a Christ follower, that you don't want to identify as a Christian, Maybe you're hearing all this and thinking, y'all are all kind of crazy. Remember what I said at the very start with the words of Gamaliel, the Jewish leader, who said, if this work that these crazy apostles are doing is true, it's going to continue. And if it's false, then uh, we don't want to, or then it'll end itself. Let me offer you that same warning today, that if you're here and you heard the gospel proclaimed to you and you reject it, that this Christianity, this kingdom that God is building has continued on for 2,000 years. It's a winning enterprise that God has freed us up as Christians from death and from sin, 
that he's working and he's moving, and if we're on his side, then it's, it's a battle that's already been won. But if you are not on God's side, if you do not belong to him, if you are not in the kingdom of Christ, if you're not in Christ yourself, then you will be found on that last day opposing God. So give thought to that. Give yourself not to just brush this off and go on and harden your heart, but ask yourself, like the church in Antioch, do I identify as a Christian? Do the people outside identify me as Christian? And how can I be involved in what's, what God is doing around the world? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, that you led Luke to write the book of Acts to preserve it for us. Lord, any, anything that we can gain from this text, Lord, we are Count it as joy, as a privilege to see the way that you work around the world. Lord, we cannot help but think, Lord, of so many in this world who, who know you, who love you, who work, who labor. Lord, please, with what we have or what we have been given, Lord, with, even if it's little, Lord, please cause us Lord, to work, to labor, to love your people, people that we will one day see in heaven with you face to face. Lord, please continue to glorify yourself around this world. Please continue to build your church, Lord, to exalt your Son, Lord, in all of our hearts. In Christ's name that we pray. Amen.